Ever since online shopping sites like eBay, Amazon, and advertisement sites like Craigslist became mainstream, a whole plethora of odd items that would never be considered an item are now being sold as if they are autographed LeBron James jerseys. But recently, a new sort of item is being put up for auction, something that, in hindsight, is just plain odd and self-fulfilling. An entire town. With prices on these bad boys ranging from half a million to close over five million, there is no practical purpose to owning a town aside from gloating to your rich friends, not to mention making yourself mayor without getting involved in politics. But for some, it can be potential piggy banks if you play your cards right. That's what Landon Dunlap was planning anyway. A product of Wall Street during the housing market boom, this 30-year-old was a multi-millionaire who could have easily retired and lived the life of luxury. But Landon was the sort of person who wants to leave a legacy that future generations will remember. So when he found out the mayor of Fire Creek put up a Craigslist ad for a town of 10, at least that's what the ad stated, being sold in Fayette County, West Virginia for about 3 million. He saw this as a prime opportunity to turn this dump into a future city. He just couldn't help himself but call the guy who put up the ad and set up a meeting at the mayor's office. Now of course he could have picked any other ghost town in the state. Lord knows there's an abundance of them. But the seller enticed Mr. Dunlap with an offer that included no restrictions on developing the land into whatever he wishes, and having no government interference. A red flag should have been raised at the idea that he could develop the land without any regulations from the state and federal government, but Mr. Dunlap figured that even with the prospect of the promise turning out to have been a lie, he can just basically pay certain politicians to look the other way. Driving towards Fire Creek in his Tahoe on the C&O Railroad that extends through Thurmond, another ghost town on the New River, it is pretty clear that unlike Thurmond, with its buildings preserved as landmarks, there was only dense forest on the way to Fire Creek, and some fog as if some higher power is using a whiteout on this patch of land. There was, however, one house he noticed that looked in near good condition, despite having telltale signs of a house fire, on the outskirts of town was a sort of decrepit, two-story mansion that has a lonely mailbox jutting out on the side of the road, almost begging to grab his attention. He pulled over next to the mailbox to get out, and analyzed the house and its surroundings. Something about the place really stroked his curiosity. He couldn't decide if it was the Neo-Georgian architecture, or the fact that right behind it was a goddamn graveyard. Most likely the graveyard. It was so jarring that there would be such an extravagant house surrounded by tombstones. But hey, he can always just tear the thing down and turn the land into something new. He checked the mailbox to see if it had a name, but before he could even check, he heard a raspy voice behind him. So, that's where you've been, Mr. Dunlop. 
Well, I reckon the wolves got you on the way here. Landon was so startled, he made a full 180 and managed to strain some muscles in his back. God damn it. He groaned and rubbed his back. Next time, give me a warning, will you, mister? Looking at the guy really gave him an uncomfortable feeling. His business suit was ridiculously dirty and tattered, which coupled together with his musty gray beard that gave Landon the impression he's likely the old town oddball. The other thing was that he looked so cheerful, it wouldn't have bothered him so much, but his rotting teeth and frail figure really wasn't a pretty sight to look at. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you officially, the dirty gent said, extending out his bony hand. I'm Colton Burroughs, the mayor of this fine establishment we call Fire Creek. Landon was afraid that this guy was the mayor, but in hindsight, it was pretty obvious. This is an abandoned town he is buying after all. And that tidbit the ad mentioned about this ruin having a population higher than one was most certainly bullshit. But he needed to suck it up and not be repulsed by Burroughs. He really wanted to buy this town after all. Its location was perfect, as it was in the mouth of New River Gorge. And once he finishes developing this patch of land into a new smart city, there's no doubt the foreign billionaires who buy houses and units as nothing more than investments will be eating this up. Charmed to meet you, Mayor Burroughs. Mind telling me what the heck is up with that house? Oh, you mean Blackstone Hall? Well, you wouldn't want to be stepping around there, Sonny. That place has quite a bit of history that would even make H.H. Holmes tremble. Well, that's, uh, that's good to know then. Now, Landon was very curious about this place. He only came here to buy, so he allowed the mayor into his car and drove him back to the town square where the office is. The building was certainly nothing worthy to write about, just essentially a one-story building that has the outside facade of a small-town convenience store. The inside was just as unimpressive. A desk cluttered with official-looking papers, hunting trophies hanging on the walls, and a cabinet that, frankly, has seen much better days. In fact, the place was pretty disorganized. But he kept the thought to himself, as he doesn't want to screw up the sale if the mayor has a hair-trigger temper. So, shall we start the negotiation process for the sale of this town? He asked settling himself down on a chair opposite the desk and putting his leather briefcase next to him. Oh, come now, dear child. Surely you must be curious as to the story about the house surrounded by death, aren't you? Well, I can see it in your eyes. You're just begging me to tell you this story. In all honesty, it's more like the mayor was keen to talk about this story since he keeps pushing it, but whatever. He might as well just listen to it as he nodded to let him know Landon definitely wants to hear this story, even though it's just for getting this deal done sooner. Well, you probably heard about the Red Ash Mine explosion that occurred back in 1900. Killed up to 50 miners. May Lord rest their souls in peace. 
Anyways, that explosion pretty much decimated the economy of Red Ash. The now formal settlement that's just on the opposite end of the river. So the bodies were buried on Red Ash Island. It is an interesting story, Landon said while tapping his fingers on the desk. But I failed to see how it relates to Fire Creek. I mean, you said it yourself. The accident happened at Red Ash. Well, officially an accident anyway. The entrepreneur immediately had his interest perked. There were rumors enveloping the gorge that the death count was actually closer to 130. But the bodies had uh, certain characteristics, if you will. It would just make things uncomfortable if the public were to see them. You see, after Pearl Harbor, the Fire Creek Mine became a joint venture project between the Fire Creek Coal and Coke Company, and the federal government as a research facility and testing ground, as the old facility at Red Ash became obsolete. Well, I heard from my pappy that they were making a secret weapon of sorts in the mines that would help the U.S. Army win the Second World War, protect the homeland from Soviet invasion. And that secret weapon had to do with something that was in the red ash mine that caused these characteristics on the bodies. But after another incident that killed almost everyone in the facility, they shut down the project. Made sure that there wouldn't be anybody living in the gorge by the way of the red car. You mean... Yep. They bought the mines within the region and had them all shut down to economically starve the town so that they have the residents be given a reason to move out. Now, of course, it's only a rumor. Landon was certainly interested in this rumor, but he wondered what it had to do with Blackstone Hall. Almost as if the quirky mayor can telepathically read minds, he answered his question before he even had the chance to ask. Blackstone Hall is actually the residence of the last mine owner, a Mr. Thaddeus Quinton. The gravesite that surrounds the place is where the rest of the miners from the Red Ash explosion, including the incident that occurred in the facility underneath the mansion, and there's a possibility that there's a second entrance to the mine within that house. Well... Why would there be a second entrance inside a house instead of it being just a regular mine shaft? Landon asked Mr. Burroughs. Well, as I said, the mine was rumored to house a secret research facility. So, why don't you use that smart brain of yours to connect the two together and get your answer? Mayor Burroughs replied with a grin, being cheekily coy with him. Landon was starting to notice a nagging feeling in the back of his mind. Now that he thought about it, he had been getting this ever since he met the mayor. And why was this mayor selling the town to begin with? And how come he was so eager to tell these stories to him? Landon pushed these questions in the back burner. He was getting more focused on getting this town. He would deal with whatever secrets the town had after he gets ownership of the land. Once the mayor seemed satisfied with saturating his buyer with all the stories, he pulled open a drawer and grabbed a document and set it on his desk. Finally, 
he brings up the deed. At least, he thinks it's a deed. It looks official, though Landon still can't help but feeling a nagging suspicion. So, Mr. Dunlap, the mayor pushed the Parker duo-fold fountain pen towards Lando. Do we have ourselves a deal? Whatever qualms he had, once the document came into Landon's sight with the pen in his grasp, the doubts he had immediately dissipated and was replaced with euphoric satisfaction. Finally, he thought to himself, he can own this patch of land and do whatever he wants. Without hesitation, he signed his name on the dotted line. Well, of course we have a deal, Mr. Burroughs, he said as he set the pen down, grabbing the document and putting it in his briefcase. It was a pleasure to do business with you. I'll make sure to send this government paper to Charleston and Washington so that they can make the land sale official. It's also in the event that if they don't accept the deed, he can make some under-the-table dealings that he can persuade some of the most influential politicians. Excellent. I'll be happy to hear the results of your efforts when you come back. He said in rather low, soft tone. Something about the way he said it really rubbed him the wrong way, as if the mayor has some ulterior plan in mind. Whatever he thought to himself, he'll be out of his hair and will have the free time to do whatever the hell Burroughs does in his spare time. As he got into his truck and drove out of Fire Creek, his curiosity about Blackstone Hall was growing more intense, almost like a mental itch that he couldn't even scratch. Maybe it wouldn't hurt to check this house out before I leave, Landon thought, pulling over right next to the familiar lone mailbox and getting out, bringing with him a compact flashlight that was in the glove compartment. I mean, after all, this is technically my mansion now, and once I restore the building, I could turn it into my personal residence. Landon really didn't seem much concerned about the story Burrow told him about the mansion. In fact, it actually drove his curiosity even further, and if it turns out that his story is true, he can even turn this into a tourist attraction for his future city. He can imagine the tagline now, Step right into the past, learn about the secrets the once bustling town of Fire Creek had been hiding from the world. Though, of course, it would help if he found out what specifically those secrets it held. Climbing up to the small steps of the mansion, loud creaks from the rotting wood emanated through his ears. He knew well in advance that this wouldn't be the last of these tingly sensations. This place was something you would see in a Ghost Hunters episode, but like a trooper, he ignored the sensation and opened the creaking door. Well, one thing's for sure as he slowly walked his way inside. He wasn't the first visitor it had. The floor is covered in rubble and trash, while the walls and some furniture are covered in graffiti tags. Damn kids, he said to himself as he wandered around the place, the flashlight's beams shining on all the nooks and crannies. Haven't the youthful pricks ever heard of private property? As he wandered around the foyer, he kept hearing these rustling sounds echo through the house. It's probably just the house creaking in its natural state, he thought to himself, 
There's just no way anybody would be in this house. I mean, it's completely cut off from the world around it, along with Fire Creek. But there was no doubt for Landon. Something, or someone, was watching him. Had the mayor trailed him and is now stalking him? Either way, he decided that he should get out as soon as possible, but as he concluded to make a U-turn and leave, something in what was once the living room caught his attention. Resting near a tattered couch was an antique stove that definitely seemed better days. Its lid, completely removed from the hinges, was resting on the stove like a limb that seeks to be reunited with its original body, though the body was filthy, covered in tags and white specks that he can only hope isn't bird feces. And for some reason, there was a frying pan resting on the top, along with what appears to be old toilet paper. He really didn't want to check inside the thing, but that mental itch kept telling him to look inside. And so, with complete finesse of a surgeon holding his breath, he stuck his hand in the stove to see what was inside. He grabbed a hold of something and pulled it out. In his hand was a leather journal that looked charred. Unfortunately, the name that was written on the cover was too worn to read, but the cover still had a unique mark that certainly distinguishes it from others. A sunwheel or something similar to that effect. It certainly wasn't the same sunwheel design that is seen on documentary shows that talk about Nazis and the occult, but still that is the only thing that can best describe it. How odd, he said to himself, now just allowing his mind to escape the cage of his cranium through the mouth. Well, I'm sure the owner of this thing wouldn't mind me taking a look at it. He opened the journal, taking a seat on the tattered couch and started to read its contents. January 10th, 1952 This is Dr. Burroughs. I'll be using this journal to record the process of Project Karufe, which will be starting tomorrow, including interviews with the test subjects involved in this experiment and the results, as I, along with my director, Dr. Melsbach, will be leading the group. I've taken extra precautions to make sure this journal isn't discovered and destroyed in the event Project Karufe blows up in everyone's faces, knowing the CIA will try to remove any public records of what we're doing. We are breaking all sorts of laws for conducting this experiment after all. If this does end up going to hell in a handbasket, well, I'm sorry to whoever is reading this, and I'm sorry to God. Burroughs, he thought to himself in surprise of hearing a familiar name. Surely it wasn't the same Burroughs he was negotiating with earlier, right? Nah, it's more likely that Colton was the doctor's son. January 11th, 1952. After discussing how to proceed with Dr. Malsbach, the first step would be to do a pre-experimentation with the ten subjects to evaluate the physical and mental conditions pre- and post-examination. Due to lack of civilian identification given to us by our superiors, the subjects will be identified throughout the course and in this journal 
by the identification mark tattooed on the palm of their right hand. A21 B04 C79 D86 E52 F63 so on. Most of them are mentally sound and all of them are healthy enough to pass the physical bar. Though, subject H10 concerns me greatly, as he exhibits clear signs of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Well, I recommended to the director that he be removed from the program, as he might be a danger to himself and to everyone around him. Of course, that Nazi prick shot me down immediately, saying that it'll be interesting to see Project Karufe's effects on people whose minds are not sound. Why the CIA brought him over to the States instead of having him stay in Germany and face the public's wrath, well, that's beyond me. For Landon, it was like reading a mystery thriller. He couldn't put the journal down. Not only that, this actually confirms that kooky mayor's story about this area. He's got the proof he needs to make this into a hotspot to the likes of Roswell. He kept reading to see what other nuggets he could find out. March 3rd, 1952 After nearly two months of administrating weekly 400 milligram dosages of Project Karufe, we had already noticed some significant changes. The pores on their skins are emanating gaseous forms of acetylene. We're still determining how this is possible, but we have advised the entire team to not bring in lighters, or any materials that could produce a spark into the vicinity of the subjects for the time being, lest we want to turn all of our research into charred remains. March 5th, 1952. This is unbelievable. Subject D-86 was ignited during an interview session with one of the lowly scientists. I don't know why, but Dr. Melsbach asked the scientist to do the interview in the interview rooms. Even though I explicitly warned him and the group, the carpeting will create static electricity that'll ignite the acetylene. But in this screw-up, we saw something nothing short of a breakthrough. Despite temperatures reaching close to 3,000 degrees, his skin hadn't even developed blisters and first-degree burns. If D-86's skin can resist these sort of temperatures, does that mean that the other subjects have the same genetic quirk? March 20th, 1952 D-86 is dead. Dr. Melsbach found him lying face down in the sleeping quarters. No visible marks have been noticed and it appears he died of natural causes. I know Melsbach had something to do with his death because he immediately began to slice him open to see if Project Kurufe made any changes to the internal structure. His organs were solidified. You see, they were covered in a thick layer of rock. Not only that, but when we did testing on his blood, there was barely any oxygen left, instead being replaced by acetylene. Opening the skull, he found the brain, while intact, had shriveled up from the heat the body's been emitting. This person should have been dead long ago. A brain in this state is surely fatal. 
So what has been keeping the subject alive up to this point? The team and I were horrified about the results, but Dr. Melsbach only nodded and jotted these sets of information down into his notebook, most likely going to report it to the CIA about the results. The funny thing is, his insides changing to that of something nobody could describe is not what mortified me. It was a scar on his right leg, a giant one at that. And I recognized that scar from anywhere. A D-86 was actually Thaddeus Quinton. Mr. Quinton was used as an experiment to this program? Landon thought to himself. He started to hear more rustling sounds in the house and even slight sounds of moaning. April 2nd, 1952. No matter how much I told Dr. Mel's back the ramifications of continuing this experiment, he refused to call it off and even threatened me with reporting to the upper brass about me going to the media if I so much think about quitting. Well, that's basically an instant death sentence. Well, the CIA is so paranoid about one-upping the Soviet Union that they would eliminate any problems in order to protect the nation's secrets. Doesn't he realize that we are reaching a critical stage? The skin has eroded and replaced with a substance that can be best described as magma. The rooms they are housed in can't even handle the 5,500 degree temperatures, and not only that, A21, E52, and F63 died after being savagely beaten by the other subjects. Their mental capacity has deteriorated to the point of being rabid beasts. Most of them. H-10, though, seems to be the only one whose mentality appears to be stable, comparatively speaking, just resting against the wall and smiling at the sight. But I suspect he was directing his smiles at us. From observations, it seems the remaining subjects are now like pets, listening to their master. I can only guess who is their master though. If we don't kill the subjects now while we have the chance, we might be able to prevent a disaster from occurring. When he finished reading the entry, Landon noticed something off about his surroundings. The temperature spiked. It felt like the Sahara Desert was put inside the mansion along with its weather. The extreme humidity making it difficult for him to breathe. Even then, he didn't think he was in danger. Yet. Besides, he thought, it looks as though there is one last entry left in the journal. Once he finished reading this, he would get out of there. April 8th, 1952. I'm bleeding out. I managed to escape the manor after the facility went to blaze, but I lost too much blood to even make it far. I'll write this final entry with the remaining strength I have, as the people deserve to know. H-10 instigated a riot. He commanded the other subjects to attack the scientists and destroy the place. I should have put that bastard down when I had the chance. He's a complete sociopath with no regard for humanity. Dr. Melsbach and I made a mad dash towards the head office where there was an emergency stairway. 
We need to report the incident to the CIA. If these things get out, there's no telling what'll happen. H-10 found us while I was talking to the officials in D.C. about the riot, managing to melt down the reinforced doors into a puddle of wax, essentially. They're just standing near the damn thing. The others, according to the readings, were still at 5,500 degrees, which we assume was the threshold. Yet, he's past 6,000. I can only hypothesize that H-10 is the only one who can control his own body temperature. He immediately lunged towards us. I managed to fall back into the emergency stairway, but he grabbed a hold of Dr. Mel's back. His death was horrifying to watch. His body was set ablaze like a candle, the high temperature being a living hell as all that liquid inside his body basically evaporated into steam turning him into a pressure cooker, exploding him instantly. I tried to escape, but the son of a bitch threw something at me that tore my left side open, and unfortunately, the hot item went through me. I managed to get up to the mansion. I suspect that the facility collapsed, as H-10 never bothered to go after me. Like, it would make much difference anyhow. To anyone who found this journal and read this, Please bring this to the attention of the government. CIA needs to be accountable for the crimes it has committed in Project Karufe. Landon closed the book. Could this journal be actually telling the truth? Is this place a tombstone of experimental freaks? Whatever the case, he immediately makes a beeline for the door to get the hell out of there. Reaching outside, it was quite apparent that something was seriously wrong. His truck was missing. He kicked the dirt in frustration. Oh, I took this as a personal belonging. Familiar voice rang behind him. The instant he turned back, Mr. Burroughs struck his head with a shovel in such a force that his skull split open as Landon hit the ground. And with two more swings to his legs, he incapacitated the bloody businessman with the sound of bone cracking. The mayor, holding the document that he signed earlier, tore it to pieces. He grabbed Landon by his wrists and started to drag him to the manor. Well, you really didn't think I'd place that ad to sell my home? Especially to a yuppie in a suit, did you? Landon wasn't able to respond to that. It was a miracle he was even conscious after that blow. Well, I've been doing this scam for... 50 years, always luring in dumbasses and wanderers to my little slice of heaven for food. He looked at Landon, his skin blistering open from the heat that was confined to only inside Blackstone Hall, the two going further into the hall with the temperature rising further. Uh-huh, don't worry boy, Burroughs laughed. Well, I ain't gonna eat you. Well, I may be in my 70s now, but... I could still hunt animals with the ease and take care of myself. My obedient pets, on the other hand, well, let's just say they need some help with getting their meal. When he reached his destination, he threw Landon into one of the back rooms, barely lit except for an orange glow coming from the other end of the room. Landon tried his best to get out of there with a crawl, 
but the blow to the head made him dizzy and severely crippled his coordination. Looking back to the source of the glow, he saw five human-like figures sat in a circle. But the comparison to humans and there. Their skin was covered in the black molten crust that leaked white-hot magma from any opening they had. Mouth, ear, wound, even their eyes were leaking magma as though they were tears. As they lumbered their way towards landing, he could make out the expressions these things had. Hunger. He now realized that he wasn't brought here for a sale. He was an unfortunate guy who signed up to be dinner under the guise of a sale. When he looked at Dr. Burroughs, the frail old bastard only gave a sinister grin towards his now former acquaintance. It was a wonderful deal you offered me, but I'm afraid I have to reconsider, as I know I can get a better offer in the near future. He waved his right hand to say goodbye and left. Before he can even react, the beast lunged on top of him and started devouring him, each bite making bits of his flesh crackle and sizzle. He lay there and just allowed the beings to eat him, admitting defeat. The last thing he sees before he dies is the mark on Mayor Burroughs' right hand as he was waving to him. H-10 and guess in some twisted ways, he now knows the story is indeed true, and would surely bet that Mayor Burroughs would be using the story as an urban legend to lure more cattle to the slaughter.